You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Luke, Luke chapter 19. And as you're turning there by way of introduction, I mean, this morning we come to what the church has historically called Palm Sunday. And it is so named after the palm branches that are laid on the road as Jesus travels down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. And it was, as we're going to see, it was a moment of intense uh, excitement. And, um, and it was an hour, and, and really, I mean, at the same time, it was also a, a moment of uh, intense confusion. I mean, while they had Jesus right in front of them, they failed to see who he really was and they failed to see who he, you know, what he really came to do. And this morning, what I really want to do is I want to try to answer a number of questions. Uh, one is, what was the cause of this mistaken identity? And what are the consequences of mistaking his identity? Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And how do we avoid uh, falling into the the errors that uh, the people that we read about in this uh, in this uh, text this morning fell into. So that's what I want to take up this morning. I presume that everyone has found their place. Uh, Luke 19, we're going to begin reading with verse 28. Luke 19, verse 28. And when he, that is Jesus, when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to um, Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, when your enemies will, be, will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to you this morning, Father, and we do look to you, O oh Father. And we ask that, Lord, you would be pleased to bless us as we seek to understand this passage. For some of us, this passage is really familiar, and its very familiarity, familiarity could serve to blind us in its own right. But for others, this passage is very new. So, Father, we pray that you will meet us in such a way, Father, that you serve food up to those who know the passage very well, but also serve it. Serve it a meal up that's so clear that everyone can grasp and understand. Father, this is something that no human being can do. This is something that only you can do. So, Father, we pray and we ask that the Holy Spirit would descend upon us now afresh, and that you would give us understanding, and that, Father, you would cause our ears to hear and our eyes to see the very beauty of just who it is who's traveling down the side of this hill in our text. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. 
Now, before we dive in and start answering these questions that I brought up in the introduction, I want to, by way of context, I'd like to show you something that perhaps you're not familiar with. And it, if, you, if you keep your place in Luke 19 and just turn back to Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 with me, I want to show you kind of a way that the Gospel of Luke is, is set up and what Luke is actually doing. In chapter 9 and verse 51, Luke, uh, he, 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 he shows us something about our Lord that is very important that we see. And in doing so, he sets up really one major uh, marker, if you will, uh, that shows us um, really what Luke is doing. Chapter 9, verse 51, we read these words, when, when the days drew near for him, that is Jesus, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, a couple of things I want to point out there. Okay, obviously the time is drawing near for Jesus to be taken up. And, and of course, uh, what, what does that mean? Well, the, the time is drawing near for Jesus to return to heaven. That's what that's about. And you'll notice that it's at this time that Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, in terms of Luke's gospel, what Luke is going to be doing now from this point on is he's going to be tracing Jesus' steps as he makes his way to Jerusalem. And I want to show you that. We can see that in several places. If you just turn along, let's just follow the journey. Turn along to chapter 13, if you will. Just page through to Luke 13 and verse 22. 13 and verse 22. There you'll see these words. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages teaching and journey. And you see there he's on his journey toward Jerusalem. Now, if you turn again, turn to chapter 17, verse, verse 11. Chapter 17, verse 11. There we have the story of the cleansing of, of 10 lepers. But notice in verse 11, Luke tells us, on the way to Jerusalem. See, Jesus is on his way. And what this implies is his face is still set upon Jerusalem. His face is set upon Jerusalem. Now, if you turn to chapter 19, chapter 19, and if you look at verse 11, there it says, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. You see there his his eyes are, are set upon Jerusalem. And what's really interesting here, I'm not going to go into the details of the parable, but let me just say this. What's really interesting here, notice the parable that he says and why he says it. Verse 11 says, As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, in one sense, the kingdom of God is already upon them because Jesus is upon them and he is the king of the kingdom. But notice what he does. He tells he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and return. Now, no one understood this at the time, but what Jesus is preparing them for is for his departure. And of course, Jesus will depart and that will be the conclusion of his first coming. And he will not return again until his second coming. So, uh, that leads us to our text this morning. And if you look at verse 28 of chapter 19, what do we have here? And when he said these things, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. So you see, Jesus' face is set. It's set on uh, Jerusalem. And um, of course, uh, as Jesus makes his way, he's now in the what we would call the suburbs of Jerusalem or the outskirts of Jerusalem. And we're told that as he drew near to Bethphage and, and Bethany at the mount that's called Olivet, at that point in time, he gives an assignment to, to, to his disciples. And he tells them to go into a neighboring town. And uh, uh, in that town, he tells them that they'll find a cult that'll be tied there. And he asks them to retrieve the cult, to untie it and to bring it to him. And he gives them these instructions. He says, listen, if anyone says anything, why are you untying the cult? Just say the Lord has need of it. And of course, in our text, we find that the disciples do exactly 
what, what Jesus has told them to do. I've often thought about this assignment. If I had been given this assignment, I think I'd feel a little bit funny going into the town, finding a call, and just untying it and taking it uh, with me. Um, but this is what they go and do. They go into the, they go into a, we don't know what town, we don't know exactly where this cult is. And because we don't know where it is, that's an unimportant detail. But what is important is what is revealed. And we know that they go into the town, they untie the cult, and its owners, plural, ask them. They say to them, what are you guys doing? And, the, and they, they reply the way Jesus told them to reply. They said, the Lord has need of it. So uh, they untie the cult and, um, and then off they go. Now, if you, if you read any commentary on this passage, the most, in all probability, it's going to say something to this effect concerning this particular part of the story. It's going to say this was done either by Jesus' foreknowledge or it was done by prearrangement. Uh, even some of you have ESV study Bibles. I didn't look at the Reformation study Bible to see uh, what it had. Um, I didn't even think about it until just now, actually. But the ESV study Bible has a, 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 a note to that effect, either foreknowledge or prearrangement. And um, what's meant there is Jesus, either, either Jesus' divinity is shining through and, you know, God, of course, can see all towns everywhere in the entire world right before him. Uh, he, he can see all things. He knows all things. And we're told that even the heart of kings are in his hands. So also the hearts of the owners of donkeys, uh, for sure. So uh, this could easily be done by God in his, you know, in his omniscience, in, uh, in his omnipotence, these fancy words. Uh, in his all-knowing and in his all-seeing, if you will, he could have done this. Uh, but there's another explanation. It could have been prearranged. Now, we can't be dogmatic which one is which, but I think that what really lends itself best to the text and what's most natural to the text is we're seeing Almighty God shine through here. Uh, we're just seeing Almighty God shine through. I, I, I wouldn't be dogmatic about that because both, both um, scenarios are indeed possible. Uh, but at any rate, long story, they, they, they go and they retrieve the cult and they bring the cult to Jesus in verse 35 and they throw their cloaks on the cult to form like a saddle and they set Jesus on it. And in verse 36, he rides along and they spread their cloaks on the, on the road as a, as a, uh, a form of homage and adoration and Jesus begins making his way uh, down the slope on the eastern side of Jerusalem off of the mount, what we call the Mount of Olives. And as he's drawing near, verse 37, al already on the way down the Mount of Olives, uh, the whole multitude of his disciples begin to rejoice and praise God. There's the excitement I was talking about. You know, the, the, the excitement that's in this air is like off the charts, uh, this is this is big time excitement that's taking place, and with a loud voice, they're praising God for all the mighty works that they had seen. Verse thirty eight, they're saying, "Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest." An excerpt from Psalm one eighteen, which we read uh, earlier. Uh, they say, "Peace in heaven and glory in the highest." So here we have uh, all of this excitement, and uh, the the. Cause, the cause of this excitement is actually multifaceted. Uh, we're told that they saw the mighty works that Jesus did. And of all these mighty works, beyond a shadow of a doubt, we could say with certainty. And John in his gospel brings this out. That's why we can say it with certainty. Is that the raising of Lazarus from the dead is, is the leading miracle here that Jesus has performed that has caused all this excitement. Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus. He lived in Bethany. And he had passed away and he had been uh, buried in his tomb for four days. And Jesus comes to the tomb and the tomb was cut out in a rock. It had a stone rolled against it. Jesus orders the stone to be rolled away. And then he, he commands Lazarus, who's been dead and in the tomb for four days, he commands Lazarus to get up and walk out. Come out, he says to Lazarus. And to everybody's bewilderment and absolute marvel, Lazarus comes walking out in his burial cloth. And now, as you can imagine, this, this created quite a, quite a stir. Uh, the folks who were there, they were, they were there, they were grieving, they knew he was dead. 
Uh, everybody knew he was dead, and, and they're grieving, and the, the grieving is going on, and the grieving at some at some places is so intense that Jesus even weeps as he senses the the pain that everybody's in. And now all of a sudden, Lazarus comes out, and he's perfectly healthy, and they're unraveling burial cloths off of him. Well, word like that travels all over the place, and uh, uh, of course, this creates a crowd, and this is the crowd that is with Jesus. Uh, in Bethany as he is making his way to Jerusalem. Now, it's Passover time. So uh, the city of Jerusalem is swelling up with pilgrims coming in to observe the Passover. Josephus, I think I remember reading a couple of years ago, Josephus tells us, uh, and I think he was reporting on around the year AD 65, I think, which would be about 32, 33 years or so after this, um, he reports that the city of Jerusalem swelled up to about two and a half million people during the Passover. So we have every reason to believe that it was similar numbers uh, on this particular Passover. So you have, and that's a huge number of people for this day and age. And so you have all of these people coming into the Passover, and, and the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead is reaching all these ears, and everybody, is, everybody wants to see Lazarus, and they want to see Jesus. They want to see with their own eyes. And they're asking the question, is Jesus going to come to the Passover? And then all of a sudden, some runners, we presume, from the Mount of Olives, they come and they come running into the city and they say, Jesus is coming. He's coming with an entourage. And this causes a crowd to come up onto the, down out of Jerusalem, up onto the Mount of Olives. And these crowds that come up out of Jerusalem and come down over the Mount of Olives, they converge and they begin in this excitement to uh, to praise, uh, here comes the king. And what the excitement is about is not simply just to see Lazarus, but the excitement is also over a deep-seated desire that the people had. And that deep-seated desire was a desire to be liberated from Roman occupation and to have the nation of Israel be returned to its former glory that it knew approximately a thousand years earlier under King David. So they're coming with the, 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 the people have this deep desire, this deep desire. And, and there was a lot of messianic expectation at that time. And what people believed was that Jesus was going to defeat the Romans, drive them out of their land, and that he would be the king under David that would liberate them and lead them to be uh, the superpower that they once were. Now, there's a major problem here. Uh, and we might ask, how could, I mean, we might on the surface say, wait a second, everybody's all excited about Jesus. You know, there's this massive adoration, even worship going on on this hill as they're praising Jesus. And we could, we could say, wait a second, how could there be a major problem here? How could it ever be wrong to be all excited about Jesus? Well, what's wrong about it is it's wrong when the Jesus you're excited about is the Jesus of your own making. I don't know if you follow what I'm saying here. Uh, what's wrong is the Jesus that they're excited about is not the real Jesus at all, but he is the Jesus of their own making. I could put it another way. When the Jesus you're excited about is the Jesus that is not a whole lot more than he who is going to give you all of your heart's desires. Okay, when that's the Jesus that you're excited about, well, then there's big time problems uh, because the big time problem uh, really, it plays itself out in two, one of two ways. Uh, typically what happens is when you do not get what you think Jesus should give you, uh, when you don't get what you think Jesus should give you, then you become downcast. Uh, or when you do not get what you think Jesus should give you, you become angry at God. And these, I'll tell you, in, in the years I've been in ministry, I have seen this so many times. People either getting downcast or people getting angry. And this is why in Luke's gospel we see it. We see it in Luke's gospel. You know, this afternoon, turn to chapter 24, and there you're going to see two disciples on the road to Emmaus who are downcast. Or you could turn to Luke 23 this afternoon, and there you're going to see the same crowd that was praising Jesus, yelling, crucify him. So you see, these are the outcomes. These are, uh, the, these are the outcomes. When we have a Jesus who is not really the real Jesus that's offered in the gospel, but a Jesus who is uh, going to give us uh, whatever we want. Uh, when we don't get what we want or when we don't get what we think Jesus should give us, well, then we're either going to be downcast 
or we're going to eventually be angry at God. And, and is this with us today? Absolutely, especially when the, the gospel is presented as something like give your life to Jesus and everything's going to go wonderful for you. Um, that, that is a very dangerous message, uh, a very dangerous message. We give our lives to Jesus, yes. In the end, uh, we're, we're, we're going to be with Him for all eternity. And it's like there's enough truth to that statement that people will embrace it, but it's a dangerous false gospel. It'll lead to a person either becoming downcast or becoming angry at God. The second major problem we have here is that not everybody's excited about Jesus, are they? You know, if you look at verse 39, there we see that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, uh, you know, they're asking Jesus to rebuke their disciples because they're afraid to do it themselves and for good reason. This crowd is so excited about Jesus that if they would open their mouths, they probably would have been stoned to death. Uh, they probably would have picked up rocks and they probably would have stoned these guys. Uh, the excitement uh, was just too high. So they asked Jesus to, uh, they asked Jesus to quench and silence them. Now, we could ask ourselves, what's their problem? And I think it's worthwhile turning there. If you keep your place in Luke, and if you turn, just turn right to the Gospel of John. Just turn to Gospel of John to chapter 11. And by the way, chapter 11 is where we have the record of the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And if you turn to chapter 11 uh, to verse 45, while you're doing that, I'll just say Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. So there's a lot of people that are excited about it, as I've already said uh, earlier. And in verse 45, we're told that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, uh, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So this is the aftermath of, of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Some are believing. And undoubtedly, some of these are the ones who come down off the hill with Jesus. Others run to the Pharisees and they tell the Pharisees what has happened. So this causes a meeting to come together. Verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? If this, this, this man performs many signs, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So what, what is their problem? Well, um, part of their problem is they're worried about the Romans. Not all of that is bad, by the way, because the people believe Jesus is going to lead an insurrection. He, they believe he's going to lead a, 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 a revolution. And this will for sure bring the wrath of the Roman army down upon the Jews. And they're no match. They're just simply no match for the Roman army. And it'll be a massive bloodbath. And of course, eventually, that is what happens uh, when the Jews do rebel against Rome. And it, it leads to the destruction of everything in AD 70, just, uh, you know, 30 plus years from this date, actually. Uh, so they're right to be worried about this. But secondly, the, the Pharisees didn't want anything to change. The Pharisees had a gig that they really liked. They had their place. Notice it says that the the, Ro the Romans will take away both our place. In fact, they mentioned their place even before they mentioned the nation. What's first and foremost on their mind? Their place, their place of honor. This gig that they've got going on is a pretty good gig and they don't want anybody messing it up. Certainly not Jesus. So they're afraid of the Romans and they're afraid of losing their place. It's real simple making an application of that today. It's you know, it really boils down to fear of man and fear of loss. You know, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 12, verse 4, He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. He says, no, don't, don't fear them. Fear God who's in heaven who, after the body is killed, He can destroy the soul. Uh, so Jesus talked a lot about hell and so should a gospel minister. It's out of vogue today to talk about hell, and our culture everywhere tells us, and unfortunately even the church everywhere tells us, don't be talking about hell. But our master talked about it all the time. So um, as a gospel of the ministry, I have to talk about it too. Uh, Jesus tells us not to be afraid of men, as hard as that is to do, and humanly impossible. We need his strength for it. But there's also another fear that we have, and that's a fear of loss. And most of this is a presumed loss of social standing. 
you know, uh, a presumed loss of social standing. I mean, we, we reason this way. We think, you know, if I tell people about Jesus, um, they're going to think that, like, um, like wacko or something, or they're going to think I'm like a, some kind of Bible-thumping fanatic, or they might think this or that. And, and um, is, is there truth to that? Well, <laughs> I, can, I can tell you there's truth to that. I mean, will, will people say stuff about you? I can tell you they, they most certainly will. Um, Will they call you names? I can assure you they will call you names. <laughs> I have. I, I'm looking at my laughing wife right now, and she she has heard many of those names. And uh, some of these names actually are going to be. You're going. You know what? I've been called names by people outside of the church, and unfortunately, I've been called names by people that are even inside the church uh, repeatedly. Will this happen? Absolutely, it will happen. Will people think you're a fanatic? Yeah, they're going to think you're a fanatic. I'll tell you right now, there'd be more little boxes on this screen right now if I wasn't so into this stuff. I, I, you know, I, I, it, it, just, it just blows my mind that someone in the church would, would, would think, you know, Rick, you're too into it. You know, you're too into it. You're just, you're just too intense and you're just too into it. You know, you're just, you're just too into this stuff. We, you know, we don't want to quite be into this stuff quite this much, you know. Over the years, that's really the essence been the problem, you know. And, and why don't we want to be so into it? It's because we don't want to lose things. We don't want to give away things. We don't want to give up our idols. We don't want to give up this stuff, you know. We don't want, and if, if that's our attitude, then we're denying Jesus the right place in our heart and the proper place in our heart. Um, he, we're denying him what he, um, what he actually should have. And in short, you know, we don't want to lose our place. It's the same sin that the Pharisees are, are committing here. We don't want to lose our place. We've got our own thing going on here. You know, uh, we've, we've got, we've got our own kingdom going on here. We've got our own thing going on here and we don't want Jesus coming in, messing it up, telling us what we should do with our Sunday mornings or telling us what we should do with our, our time and our devotion, uh, so it's, it's exactly the same sin. Now, if we go back to Luke chapter 19, and if you look at verse 41, how does Jesus react to all this? So important for us to see. Luke 19, verse 41, when he drew near, when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he rejoiced over it, correct? I'm <laughs> seeing heads, like, no. No, he weeps over it. Uh, why, why is he weeping over it? Well, he, he gives us the reason. We don't have to guess. I'm so glad we don't have to guess why he's crying. I'm so glad we don't have to guess on this one. It's very clear. He says "Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden for your, from your eyes. Why is Jesus upset? Well, he's upset because they're missing it. Both groups missed it. The multitudes missed it. The multitudes who wanted this political military leader who would liberate them from Rome and return them to the glory days of David, they missed it. And the Pharisees who just wanted Jesus to disappear because they really liked their life just the way it is without Jesus, they missed it too. And that, that leads us, I mean, if both groups missed it, and it's so clear that they did, if both groups miss what Jesus is doing, then we ought to ask ourselves this question of the text right now. What exactly is Jesus doing? Does that make sense? If both groups miss what Jesus is up to, then we should be asking this question, what exactly is Jesus up to? And I think to answer this question, we need to ask another question. And that question is, what is unusual about this text? There's something extraordinarily unusual about this text. And if, you're, if you've read the Gospels, uh, you've probably already caught on to what's unusual and what's unusual is how visibly public Jesus is. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when you read through the gospel, sometimes you're even amazed and confused as to why after healing somebody, Jesus would tell them, don't say nothing to no one. Don't talk about this. Don't, don't tell nobody. I mean, just in Matthew's gospel, you know, in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus heals uh, two lepers. And he tells them, or he heals a leper rather, and he tells them, he tells the leper, don't tell no one. You know, and then a few chapters later, he heals two blind men. And, and then he says to them, don't tell nobody. And then he heals a whole group of people. And he tells them, don't tell nobody. 
Now, why is Jesus doing that? Well, there's, there's numerous answers that, we, that could be given. But one is Jesus doesn't want to be perceived simply as a miracle worker. Uh, our, our God really hates being a genie in a bottle. You know, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to be perceived that way. But secondly, it isn't his time yet, meaning it's not time for him to be taken up in glory. Now, what is significant about that? What's significant about that is Jesus is using this publicity on purpose. He has kept his plus publicity at bay because he realized that his publicity would lead to his crucifixion. It would lead to his execution. And he's been keeping this at bay. He's been keeping this publicity, the gas pedal of this publicity, he's been throttling with, with perfect skill. And now he has set his face upon Jerusalem. He has now set his face. And what that means is he has set his face upon the cross. That's the next step. And he is pushing that gas pedal down full throttle as he heads towards Jerusalem. And he's going to use this very publicity, actually, to increase the hostility against him to such a degree that they will crucify him. And um, we could ask the question, you know, should Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, should he be sacrificed in secret? The answer is absolutely not. One of the great preachers, J.C. Ryle, said it this way. He said, quote, The atoning blood of the Lamb of God was about to be shed. This deed was not to be done in a corner. So Jesus is pushing the pedal down. He's pushing it down full throttle to increase that hostility against him. He realizes that these crowds that are praising him now, will be yelling crucify him in just a couple of days. And he's pushing that pedal down all the way to the floor to increase this hostility in order that his crucifixion will occur. Now, if, if Jesus was, and, 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 and let's, let's take a look at, let's try to clarify some things here. I mean, if Jesus was coming to declare war on Rome, he wouldn't be coming on a donkey. Uh, to, to us, that sounds really strange because I don't think any of us own a donkey. Um, but we would have known that really clearly had we lived in this time. Uh, kings in times of peace rode donkeys. That's not what they, they rode in times of war. Jesus would have been upon, a, upon a, a war horse. And by riding on this cult, he's fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. Luke doesn't bring that out. But the other gospel writers do. And they didn't understand that at the time. John makes it clear that they didn't understand that until afterwards. But um, he's, he's upon a colt, the fall of a donkey, and, and he's coming in peace. And what I want us to see here is how our desires and our wishes, how they blur our vision and our discernment. I mean, what am I trying to say is, Misplaced desire, it, it, it blinds us from being able to see, it blinds us from being able to discern. It's like you can almost imagine, you can almost imagine like a, a pair of colored lenses on, uh, over our eyes. You know, if you, had, if you had colored lenses, I used to have these goggles, they were for, for riding motorcycles, you know, and you could get like an amber lens. And of course, if you put the, goggle on, the goggles on with amber lenses, everything looked amber. It was nice because the sun, it kind, of, it, it kind of helped with the sun. But our wishes and our desires are kind of like a, 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 a lens that's over our eyes, which colors everything that we see and everything that we perceive. And, you know, we tend to perceive the facts through this coloration, if you will. The Jews wanted liberated from Rome, and the Jews wanted to return to the former, hey, you know, the, the heyday under King David. So that colored all the facts. Everything that they saw is colored through those lenses. And here comes Jesus, and it's simple. You know, here comes Jesus. If he can raise Lazarus from the dead, well, then surely he can, you know, uh, he, can, he can liberate us from Rome and, and, and restore the heyday of uh, of our former glory. And here we see how, how blind we can be to what we really need. You know, the Jews thought they had peace with God. They thought they had peace with God. They didn't think to look for peace with God because they thought they had peace with God. And I'll tell you what, our culture is so much like that today, isn't it? 
I mean, it's, it's practically inconceivable to our culture that God could be angry for any reason. And what does that say about our culture? It says that our culture thinks it has peace with God. We think we have peace with God. And um, the, the Bible makes it so very clear that if we're walking in unbelief, we do not have peace with God, but God's very wrath is upon us. And what that means is that our neighbor, who is such a nice guy, or maybe such a nice young woman or a nice senior uh, or whatever, if they have not bowed their heads to the Lordship of Christ in saving faith, that God's wrath is upon them. That's what that means, and that's what we have to get into our minds. But our culture everywhere teaches the exact opposite. No, man, there, I had a guy call me here just the other day and was talking about somebody and was just telling me, hey, you know, um, this person is so nice and, and you know, their their heart is in such a good place. And, and as we're talking, you know, uh, I, I began to ask that person, I'm like, listen, okay, you know, tell me about your faith. If you, you know, tell, tell me where you're at. And they have yet to put their faith and their trust in Christ. And I didn't give them any false sense of assurance. I'm not going to do that. If you have yet to put your faith and your trust in Christ Jesus, God's wrath is upon you. It doesn't matter how earthly nice. When we say someone's nice, we can only say they're nice when we compare them to each other. So we have to get this. We have to understand that we're actually blind to what we really need. I mean, a Jesus who can give us cheap health care is a welcome Jesus. I mean, that's a welcome Jesus. If 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 I could say, listen, I've got a Jesus who can give you cheap Healthcare insurance. I, I tell you right now, that would go that would that would go really well in our culture, as many of you can imagine. Or a Jesus who can provide us with more leisure is a welcome Jesus. Or a Jesus who can provide us with a rich income that's a welcome Jesus. Or or a Jesus who can make all our wishes and desires come true to our to tickle our fancy. That is a that is a popular Jesus. But what this is. Is it's a Jesus of our own making, just like the Jesus that these people are praising on the side of that hill. It's a Jesus of our own making, and it's idolatry. And idolatry will never go well for us. With this lens over our eyes, we're going to create the Jesus that we want, and we're going to be blind to the Jesus that we need. And even though the real Jesus is right in front of us, we're never going to see him. And Jesus is, listen, Jesus is not the kind of king that the world is expecting, nor is he the kind of king the world desires, and he's certainly not the king that we deserve. I want to repeat that. I want to repeat that for you. Jesus is not the kind of king the world was expecting, nor is he the kind of king the world desires, and he's certainly not the king we deserve. He's certainly not the king we deserve. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, if we can take off this lens, if we can take off this lens What kind of Jesus will we see? And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about. Because the king that we're going to see is a humble king. And if you're taking notes, write that down. He is a humble king. Humility is not something we know very well. We're all proud creatures in varying degrees. And humility is something, I mean, I know some of us, you know, we we pray. I've prayed with you and we pray, Lord, help me with my pride. And it's, it's, it's. It's dreadful, and humility is something that we wrestle, we've just wrestled for, and pride is something we wrestle with. But we look up on the side of that hill, and what do we see? We see a humble king. You know, first of all, he's riding on a donkey that he borrowed. You know, he went and borrowed this donkey, which is amazing to us. I mean, it's through him. It's through the Son of God that all things were made. Yet he goes and borrows a donkey. It's his donkey. And the donkey only has life because it's, it has life through Jesus. It gets its very breath through Christ Jesus. The animal that he's riding on breathes because the one riding on it is sustaining its life. And it's owners, owners, plural. That's suggestive that these were poor folks. You know, a donkey was the modern equivalent of a truck, a pickup truck. And it it appears that multiple owners were sharing this truck that Jesus borrows. And the fact is, these folks only have this donkey because God has provided it for them. 
But yet Jesus borrows it with intent to return it. Even though he owns it, and even though he has given it life and breath and everything else. Do you see the humility of that? The humility of that is absolutely, um, I don't, I'm grasping for words to describe it. Um, it's incredible. And furthermore, I mean, he's not the mighty revolutionary that Israel thinks they need. He's, he's, the, prince of, he's the prince of peace that they need. And he has come to give Israel what they didn't even know they needed, peace with God. And here he is, he's listening to all these people in their idolatry. It's in their idolatry that they're hailing all these things. It's blatant idolatry, which he hates. Yet in his humility, his face is set on Jerusalem. And he, he, his face is set on the cross in the midst of all of this. He's mighty God in the flesh. Now, just as this was true then, it's true today as it's ever been. Most people are not looking for a humble Savior riding on the back of a donkey. Call your friends up and say, hey, um, here he is. He's, he's humble and he's riding on a donkey. They're going to be, what are you talking about? The world's not expecting that. The world's not even looking for that. In other words, most people today are not looking for a Prince of Peace. But Jesus is what we need more than anything, uh, anything else. And um, unfortunately, most people in our culture are with the crowd who, who will eventually yell, crucify him, we're not interested. And when, when we hear the gospel, by the way, when we hear the gospel and we reject the gospel, we are with that crowd, by the way. We're saying, what we're saying in our hearts is we're saying crucify him. That's what we're doing in our hearts when we reject him. We're saying we don't want him. So in a sense, we're spiritually crucifying him when we reject him. The time to receive him isn't to wait until tomorrow. The time to receive him is to receive him now if you haven't received him. And the time to receive him afresh is now. Uh, even after, if we've received him many, many years ago, let's receive him afresh and that leads to, you know, let, let, let's think about this for a moment. Let's think about how wonderful peace with God is. You know, like we don't have to run and hide from God. You know, as I look around, I see most of you. I, I know you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. Isn't it wonderful that this morning we don't have to hide from God? We're not like Adam and Eve who, who you know, sow fig leaves together and hide in the bushes when we hear him coming. But no, on the, on the, to the very opposite, we're, we're here. Why? Because we seek His fellowship. <laughs> you know, how wonderful it is to have intimacy with God. We don't run and hide from Him. No, we're actively pursuing Him. We want Him and we, we, we want His presence in our life every moment of the day. To be brought into this intimate relationship with Him is so very wonderful. And let me share this with you. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you're closer to Jesus. And let me, let me say it this way. Jesus is closer to you than you are to your spouse or your kids. I don't know if you've ever put that together or not. I'm going to repeat it in case you missed that point. If you are in Christ Jesus this morning, Jesus is closer to you than you are to your spouse, to your parents, or to your kids. Is that an amazing thought? Is that a, how blessed is that? To not have enmity between God, but to have God so close to us that He is closer to, God is, Jesus is closer to me than I am to Tammy, or that I am to mom and dad, or I am to Tommy and Becky, or to the kids, or to anybody else. What a, that, that's a thought that's worthy of adoration and worship. Right there. We could spend all, a lot of time on this, but I want to give you two more points. I'll go quickly. Surrender. Jesus is not only a humble king, but he's a surrendered one. And this is so amazing. I mean, look at the complete surrender of Jesus to the will of the Father. We go back to, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to take you back to John 9, 51 and follow his, tra and follow his steps. He sets his face on Jerusalem in, in Luke 9 and verse 51. He sets his face to Jerusalem. He knows what awaits him there. He knows full well what awaits him there. But he sets his face on it, and he sets his heart on it. And uh, he doesn't hesitate. 
He doesn't hesitate. And while he's on that hill listening to the, to the crowds yell in blatant idolatry, blessed is he who comes and the, and the you know, blessed is the one who comes, the king who comes in his glory. As, as they're saying all these things, he realizes it for what it is, but he doesn't even break his cadence as he's headed down to the city of Jerusalem for the joy that's set before him. You know, that's why I chose Hebrews 12, 2 this morning, 12, 1 and 2, for the joy that was set before him. What did he do? He set his face to Jerusalem and he went to the cross. For what reason? So that he would give us what we want and what we think we want? No, so that he could give us what we need. And that is the things that make for peace. That is so that he could die on the cross in our place and take away our sin so that we could have this intimate, intimate relationship with him. He's not the political figure that they wanted. He's the Lamb of God that they need. And the last point that I want to make is he is a loving king. He's a loving king. And Jesus, um, you know, as I've said, he comes to a multitude of people who betray him. Yet he comes to them anyway. And when, when they don't get what they want, they're going to yell crucify him. But that doesn't stop him and that doesn't slow him down in any way. Philippians 2, chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, that we read earlier in our service, it reads, Though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. There's his humility. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. There's his surrender, his humility and surrender meeting by humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And there is love unspeakable and indescribable. And why does he do this? What is up with this love that's unspeakable and this love that is indescribable? That's how much he loves you. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, how much does Jesus love you? Drink of this passage. Go up on that hill with Jesus and listen to the idolatry and watch Jesus. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't break his cadence. He doesn't slow down. His face is set before him. The cross of G- the cross is before him. Uh, the Father's will is before him. The love of those whom he has come to save is before him. And just a few words of final application, and I'll close. What should this? What effect should this have on us? Uh, for those who have walked in Him for some period of time, the effect it should have on us. For those who have never walked. What are you waiting on? Come to Him. Come to Him now. Come to Him this moment. Come to Him now. How do I come to Him? You believe in Him. You know, listen to this tape over and over again when it's put up. Write down your notes. Look at this passage of Scripture and read it over and over again and ask yourself, why shouldn't I come to Him? There is no rational or good reason that you shouldn't come to Him. When should I come to Him? You come to Him now. Come to Him today. Come to Him in this hour. And don't let Him go. But to those of us who have walked with Jesus for some time, what effect should this have on us? Well, if our master, who is God in the flesh, walked in such humility that he would ride upon a borrowed donkey and come down off that hill like that and surrender to the Father, we can see clearly that there is no place for pride in our lives, is there? There's just no place for pride in our lives. I mean, there's just no place for it. So um, may, it, may it motivate us, may it reveal our pride, you know, may it reveal our, our desire for the praise of one another, may it reveal those things, and may it remind us to, to go to God and to labor with Him that, that we might put to death these, um, these things. And, and secondly, it should inspire and motivate our surrender to the Lord. As we see how surrendered Jesus is to the Lord, uh, this, this should motivate us and and um, help us with our own surrender to the Lord. If we're having trouble in that area and there's things we don't want to give up in our lives and surrender to our lives, we'll look to Jesus. He did not come to do His own will. He came to do the will of the Father. And that's where your motivation will come from. That's where it'll come from, is the Holy Spirit applies this to your heart. And thirdly, it should increase our love for Christ and one another. We see this incredible love. What effect does this love have on us? It increases our love in return. And, and you, you know that. I mean, most of you know that. What wins our hearts ultimately? It's not the threat of punishment in hell. It's God's kindness. Romans 2.4. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's what God is doing for us. It's His love that leads us this way. Uh, that's, that's, what, that's what leads us to repentance. And 
Um, but as we find ourselves loving God more, we'll find ourselves loving others more. And I'm not just talking about the people you already love anyway. I mean, you know, our, our, our personalities are such that they gravitate towards certain other personalities, and we find it very easy to love certain other people. But what about, what about people that are, that are, for whatever reason, hard to love? What about people, you know, sometimes we act like jerks, don't we? You know, and, and sometimes people act like a jerk, and, and we don't want to be around the person that acts like a jerk. And I'll say this for those, you know, for anyone here who's looking at the church or anyone who will listen to this message after, to, whether it be today or tomorrow, whenever, you know, listen, if you come into the church, don't be surprised if you're met with a jerk or two, because, listen, we act like jerks, and jerks are spread out pretty evenly. And listen, and, and I have encountered... Um, I have encountered folks who have treated me like a jerk in the church. Don't let that don't let that run you off. What we should do is we should think immediately how many times we ourselves have acted like jerks. But what I'm saying to those of you who have walked with Jesus for many years, we're called to love people even if they act like jerks. I mean, look what the Lord is doing here. Um, we're, we're called to love people even when they treat. That is humanly impossible to do, isn't it? I, I find that to be the most I find that to be the most challenging thing to do. To love people that are treating the treating us wrong, to love people that that are blatantly disagreeing with us, to love people that are of a different maybe maybe a different political sort than us. It could go down the list. Where's the where where's the motivation and where's the empowerment to love people that is hard for us to love? It's right here. As we look out on that hill and we see Jesus determined to go to the cross for us. Um so with that, I'll certainly uh, conclude. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we so thank you. And we so praise you, Father, for the story that we've looked at so many times. Some of us have looked at this story uh, many, many times. And Lord, even in preaching this story and, and looking at this story afresh uh, year after year, and Father, either choosing Luke or choosing John or choosing Matthew or Mark and um, making decisions for Palm Sundays that comes around, Father. We become so familiar with this text, Father. Lord, we pray that you would press the truths of this text upon our hearts afresh this morning, that, Father, we would find new motivation, that we'd find our, 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 our desire for Jesus increased. Father, I pray, meet everybody here, O oh, Father, that fill their hearts with, with the Lord. Uh, Lord, as difficult as it is to worship like this, Father, your Holy Spirit, oh Holy Spirit, you can work in our hearts even though we're looking at each other from a screen and we, and we can't hear each other. Oh Father, work in our hearts to see the real Jesus. Pull that lens from our eyes that we would see Jesus coming down that hill. We would see the King that we, that we need. And Father, we would see Him in His, in his humility and His surrender and His love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.